Looking at our world from a theological perspective, this is the Theology Central Podcast, making Theology Central. Good afternoon, everyone. It is Wednesday, December the 8th, 2021. It is currently 3.46 p.m. Central Time, and I'm coming to you live from the Empty Sanctuary of Victory Baptist Church, located right here in Ovalo, Texas. And can I be very honest with you? Can I be very frank with you? I don't really want to do this particular episode. I know we need to bring this discussion to a conclusion but I've kind of lost interest in the St. Peter option. I've become a little bit frustrated and kind of irritated because it doesn't really appear to be much of an option. It doesn't even have anything really specific to offer any of us. I hope the conversations about it up to this point have been beneficial, but I will argue that if you've gained anything from this, I don't think you've gained anything from the actual St. Peter option, as it is called, and you've had hopefully more benefit, hopefully if you've gained any benefit, it's from the questions I've asked and the discussion we have we have had in regards to it. Now, I know that sounds a little bit arrogant, but I'm not trying to be arrogant. I just, when I, I sat down and I was like, okay, so what do I do? What do I do? It's Wednesday afternoon. What do I do? How do, how do I start this? And I was like, so I, I I got everything set up in the software. Okay, the St. Peter option, part three, a quick dis- description. We conclude our look at the St. Peter option. All right, the keywords for hashtags. Okay, put those in. Okay, I got ready. And then I'm like, you know, never mind. And then I deleted it all and said, let's not, I- I'm not going to do the St. Peter option part three. I just won't do a part three. I'll just leave it like it is. Most likely, I'm not even going to get an email asking where part three is. And I'll just move on. But I was like, no, I need to bring this to some kind of conclusion. And so I'm trying to think of what is the most valuable lesson we can learn from what we have heard so far. So let let me just give you a a, a basic review. All right. So here's the basic review. The question that really is the foundation for this entire discussion is this. As a Christian, how should you live in a post Christian world, or we could even use this phrase, as a Christian, how do you live in a post-truth culture? You have to live in it. You go to work in it. You do this, you do that. How do you live in a culture that is no longer influenced by Christianity, is becoming more and more hostile to it? They reject it. How do you live? Now, really, this has been a question that Christians have been asked, have been asking themselves and trying to provide answers to for basically the entire here, here the entire history of Christianity. In fact, if you think about it, when Paul is writing the Church of Corinth. Remember the 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 First Corinthians. I, I I've stated this so many times when we went verse by verse through the book of First Corinthians. I stated this almost at the beginning of every sermon, but this is very applicable to what we're trying to do. The letter of First Corinthians is a letter written to a church that was located in a city. The city was influencing the church more than the church was influencing the city. So when we read 1 Corinthians, we're reading about all of these problems the church had because the people were being so influenced by the city. They were thinking like the people in the city. They were were doing things that people in the city were doing. In fact, in some cases, they were going above what the city was doing. And so this has always been a problem within the history of Christianity. As a Christian, you live in the world. 
and that world influences you. And so how do you live in it? How much do you withdraw from it? How much do you isolate yourself from it? How, how do you conduct? How do you think? And Christians throughout church history have come up with all kinds of ideas. All kind, We'll call them options, right? Here is the, this is what you do. You get rid of your television. You, 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 you make, or you cancel your Netflix account. You don't go to movie theaters. You don't go here. You don't do that. You don't dress this way. You don't talk this way. Everyone has their list of, this is how you live. And there is very little agreement even within Christianity on what to do. But whenever I hear, oh, here's another option. I I always want to check it out. I always want to hear their perspective. What's frustrated me about this one is it really hasn't offered us anything specific other than, look, basically this is what they focused on. The world out there, it's bad. It's progressive. It's woke. It's liberal. And you've got to figure out how to stand against it. No warning of the right-wing conservative hijacking of the church. No discussion of what are Christians supposed to do living in a basically a post Christian church, they're, they're really a lot, a lot of the actual issues that Christians are facing, they ignored and talked about issues that I don't know how much is impacting the average Christian. So it's been very frustrating, and they've really not given us much of anything other than looking in 1 Peter chapter 1 saying, hey, this is a baptismal doxology, in which we d- try to, we try to d- deal with those questions. Okay, uh, Someone listening just said this. I still don't know uh, what is considered the option. Are there defined points I missed? No, you didn't miss any points because there haven't been any other than, hey, First Peter chapter one is a baptismal doxology. Isn't it wonderful? And, <laughs> and I'm like, what, what does this have to do? I, I still don't really get it. I don't even really understand. And again, the reason they're calling it the St. Peter option is to distinguish it from the, from, and, and the book is in the Amazon, um, the, the Amazon Theology Central Book Club. In fact, I'm going to go to the book club really quick because it's working today. Yesterday, yesterday uh, because the AWS services, Amazon Web Services were down, uh, the book club was a mess. But it's working today. But I go to the Theology Central Book Club, and here we are, The Benedict Option, a strategy for Christians living basically in a post-Christian world. So they, they, they're calling this the St. Peter Option to distinguish it from the Benedict Option. Okay, well, that's great, but the Benedict Option seemed to be very more like it's far more specific, giving you some details in what we are supposed to do. Now you may disagree with the Benedict option. And I, I think there's plenty there that we could look at. But when I heard that they were doing the St. Peter option, I'm like, okay, so here's going to be basically the way I, I thought of it, since it's on issues, et cetera. This is going to be the Lutheran approach to living in a post-Christian culture. Now I found this to be extremely fascinating as someone who used to be a Lutheran, because as someone who used to be a Lutheran, I'm, I know this may offend some Lutherans, but I went to multiple Lutheran churches, was going to be a Lutheran pastor. That was, that, that was where, you know, I, I started learning a lot of doctrine theology, but I'm going to, maybe this is somewhat of a joke, but, but it's based on some level of truth from what I saw in the Lutheran church, that nobody had an option. It was just basically go live how any, live any way you want. I mean, there really wasn't ever much of an issue about, can you do this? Can you do that? Don't do this. Don't do, there really wasn't much discussion about any of that. In fact, remember the very first time as a teenager sitting in a Lutheran church for the Sunday school class, it was a book about basically, (laughs) 
It was, it was a book on sexuality. And basically the Sunday school class, and I am not joking, was basically a sex ed class. It wasn't even about abstain. It was about if you engage in premarital sex, take this percussion and this percussion and this percussion. And I was like, what? It just happened here. Okay. So I'm not saying all Lutheran churches are like that, but I'm just saying that Lutherans are not, I can't say that Lutherans are really known for, hey guys, here's how we need to live in this culture. Uh they, 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 they may very much emphasize the gospel and the distinction of law and gospel, which I think is very, very needed and good. And there's a lot of good things um, from it. But And then if you even consider the preaching in most Lutheran churches, the sermon, you know, 15, 20, 25 minutes, maybe if you're, maybe if you're pushing it, maybe. Uh, I think, you know, I think the longest I've ever seen was around 35. And I think that was like considered almost anathema. So... I, I wanted to hear, oh, here's a Lutheran perspective, all right? I want to hear how they think we should live, but I'm somewhat, like, one of the reasons I didn't even want to do part three is, like, I don't really know what's the option. So we're going to finish this up. We've already listened to 30 minutes of this. Um, I know we've broken it down into small segments, but here we go. We're going to come back in after the last break, and we're just going to... we're. T- <laughs> We're going to see where they go. I mean, basically, all we've been told is, hey, the world is woke and liberal and there's the LGBTQ transgender movement and we've got to take a stand against it. But they really didn't tell exactly how that works. No practical discussions. Now, I know this is only the introduction to their series. I know. So maybe in later parts, they will give some very specifics and I will try to listen to that and bring you know, a follow-up if needed. I'm not trying to be super critical. It's just maybe I was expecting something different. Maybe because they definitely started off by contrasting this with the Benedict option. I bet we're going to get some like basic principles. Maybe we're getting ready to get one. I don't know. Here we go. We're just going to finish this, all right? I know this is not this is not the way you begin a podcast. I'm basically beginning this podcast by saying, hey, guys, I don't even really know why we're continuing, so don't bother to listen. Yeah, I'm I'm really good at, at, at yeah, I'm, I'm pretty stupid there, aren't I? Okay, all right, no, because let me start again. Hey, guys, what you're about to hear is going to be life-changing. You need to stop what you're doing, call your friends. You will never be the same. You will be radically transformed from what you are about to, that's how you typically, a lot of preachers and podcasters promote their stuff. This is going, this sermon series is going to transform your life. How many times I listen to sermons all the time. And whenever they introduce a new sermon series, that's what they always say. You need to make sure you're here every week. This is going to change your marriage, change your family, change. And it's just like, wow, every sermon series is going to completely revolutionize the world. And sometimes I think we're, we're, we uh, hype things too much. So I'm not going to hype it. I think this is getting ready to be an, a, an absolute train wreck, but here we go. Are you ready? The St. Peter option, how to live in a post-Christian world. So far, we don't have any, <laughs> we have no points, but here we, other than the world is bad, bad, liberal, progressive, and woke, bad. All right. Okay. We've gotten that down. All right. Now. Here we go. And first Peter is a baptismal doxology, right? But it raises some serious questions considering the Lutheran view of baptism, but we won't go back through all of that because we had a good discussion about that in part two. All right, here we go. Let's jump in.
Welcome back to Issues Etc. I'm Todd Wilkin. It's the beginning of a series, The St. Peter Option, Living as Exiles in a Foreign Land with Pastor Peter Bender. Peter, you said before that the Apostle Peter's approach, despite suffering, is marked by joy. It's stunning. Think about, and we're going to talk about this throughout the, the series, but think about Peter and think about his own personal life. He was a fisherman in Galilee. He's a rugged man. He's a businessman. He and his brother Andrew and their colleagues, uh, James and John up there in uh, Galilee, you know, they, they were in the fishing business. They knew their trade and so forth. And they became followers of the Lord Jesus. They were baptized by John the Baptist. And then they, they left their fishing business and they followed Jesus. And they hung in his every word. And throughout it all, uh, they experience, as we see in the Gospels, their own mistakes, their own foibles, their own weaknesses, their own struggle with sin. And probably that's no more on display than it is with Peter. I identify with him so much, uh, both because I share the same name that the Lord gave him, Peter, but more importantly, I share with him the same weaknesses, boldness, brashness, but opening one's mouth when it would have been better to keep it closed an inordinate reliance upon self. And there's so much, on the one hand, sincerity in Peter when he's with Jesus, and yet a sincerity that is often misplaced into his own efforts. And that's only going to lead to despair if you rely upon yourself. So, you know, when he boasts, Lord, I, I will never deny you, even if all are made to deny you, I will never deny you. And, and Jesus has to tell him before the rooster crows three times, you will deny me. And uh, he went out of the courtyard of the high priest, and he wept bitter tears after this as, as Jesus looked at him. And, and those bitter tears of contrition and repentance were some of the most salutary suffering that Peter went through, because it is in the context of the suffering with his own sin that the grace of God and the forgiveness of his Savior became the sweetest to him. And I submit to you, Todd, that it is that forgiveness and mercy that he absolutely believed, I do not deserve this in the slightest, which became the source of his joy and why he relied upon his baptism, why he gives praise to God the Father of his Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy begot him again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled, reserved in heaven for him. So the suffering here is not just the suffering from outside and the persecution from outside, but it is also a suffering from within. So the living hope of salvation through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, blessing God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ under the cross of persecution and suffering, including the external persecution on account of one's faith in Christ, and, as in the case of Peter, the internal suffering on account of the problem of original sin. Okay, not quite sure how he's taking these principles and applying them to how I should live in a post-Christian world, but let me try to extrapolate from this a principle that I think is just extremely important that we can apply to ourselves. I've got to try to find something to give to us. I think first and foremost, I think one thing I do appreciate about Lutheran 
theology is at least a constant acknowledgement of our own sin and our own failure and how fall far we fall short. I love that about it because we need, I mean, sometimes some, some forms of Christianity seems to ignore the fact that we still sin. It's almost like now that you're a Christian, now you're infused with superpower and you can live a Christian life and you can, you can do everything that Jesus did, that, that kind of concept. So I, I do appreciate the, the constant acknowledgement that we're going to sin, we're going to sin, we're going to sin. So how do we take this and apply this to, okay, we come to church, we confess our sins, we we hear the gospel preach, we pray, we we learn, we grow. Okay, but at some point we're going to walk out of the door and go back into that that world that is so, as he has put it, woke, progressive, liberal, ungodly, all of these ungodly philosophies. I think here's just a very important principle. We always walk in back into that culture acknowledging our own sinfulness before we have anything to say about the sinfulness of the culture. For too long, I think the church has spent its time pointing its finger at everyone else's sin, at everyone else's flaws, at everyone else's failures, almost like we have some moral superiority, when in reality, we have enough problems sitting in every pew in every church, because sitting in every pew are sinners, sinners that are broken, sinners that have committed sin in thought, word, and deed by what they have done and by what they have left undone. And sometimes we forget our own sinfulness, and we're so pre- we are so preoccupied with the sinfulness of this ungodly world that we ignore our own, because it's very easy. Look, there is a, there is a psychological reason why we are preoccupied with everyone else's sin, because it makes us feel better about ourselves, right? Look at them, look at them, look at them, look at that, look at that family falling apart. Look at, whoa, you know, and so even if you don't say it, there's a part of you that says, thank God I'm not like those people. Thank God I would never do that. I don't know how in the world that person would ever do that. Have, have you, <laughs> I hear Christians say that. I don't know how someone will do that. I don't know how, I don't know how. I'll, I'll give you an example. I just received an email. Uh, I don't know what, uh, 24 hours ago, maybe, maybe 48. So when I say I just received it, in the last few days, I just received an email. It was a very disturbing email. Uh, way, way, way back, and I don't know, long time ago in a galaxy far, far away, seven years ago, eight years ago, nine years ago, when I was briefly on Facebook, um, I had met a few people on Facebook and here was someone I became kind of quote, I hate to call friends, acquaintances via social media, right? Which, yeah, whatever that supposedly means. Well, I haven't heard about from this person or anything from this person in eight years, seven years, I don't know. And so I just get an email from another person saying, hey, have you heard about this person that you used to know? Look what they did, and it's horrible. They've been arrested, drugs. It's just a horrible situation. And far, part of me was like, well, why, why are you emailing me telling me about this person? Do I need to know what they did wrong? Do I need to know? Do, do I really need to know? So I said, well, well tell, tell them if you talk to them that, you know, if I'm here, if, you know, if they need to talk, and obviously I will pray. And But then I, I kind of gave a, a gentle rebuke, you know, well, don't tell people who don't need to know. Well, why do we need to share everyone else's failures? Why? Why? You know about the failure. Pray for them. Counsel them. Help them. You don't need to share it, but sometimes we almost take delight in letting everyone else know how bad everyone else is because it somehow makes us feel better about ourselves. I, 
maybe that's unfair. And I'm not saying that's what the person was doing consciously. It just seems that Christians are very good at telling everyone else about what everyone else does wrong. And it's like, whoa, slow down, you know? And so I think one of the things of living in a, a fallen, broken world is we focus on the sin in the person. I hate to quote Michael Jackson lyrics, but we start with the man in the mirror, okay? I, 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 Michael Jackson had good theology, okay? He had other problems, but he had good theology, okay? We need to start with the man in the mirror. We have to start with ourselves, right? We have to look at ourselves and that we have to always remain that humble. I, I, there, sometimes there's a number of websites for some weird reason, a quote that I gave in a sermon, which I don't even know where the quote originated from. It's shown up on a couple of websites and I've mentioned it before and people have gone and looked and go, wow, you're actually on like this quote website. I'm like, well, I don't know how I ended up there. And I don't even, I think the quote actually originated from a Puritan. I don't even know the, the original source. It just happened to be in my notes, but when I, when I stated it, but I said something like this and I'm, I'm, this is a poor paraphrase, but something along this line, that true humility is when we are far more aware of our own sin than the sins of anyone else. When we're far more concerned with our own sins than the sins of anyone else. And sometimes I think the church and as Christians, we are far more concerned and aware of everyone else's shortcomings, everyone else's failures. We want to share it. We want to condemn it. And we want to talk about it. Now, if you're if, to live in a, a fallen world, we need to always be looking at our own failure first. I think that's just a, an important principle to live in a fallen world because it's very easy living in a fallen world to feel morally superior because you can look at all the horrible stories of everyone else's life and go, well, I, you know, you can drive past an adult bookstore and say, well, I thank God I don't go to places like that. You, you can drive by a strip club and go, well, I thank God I've never been to one of those. You, you, you can see a homeless, you know, drunk laying in front of a liquor store and go, well, I thank God I've never been homeless because of an alcoholism. You can always act like you're superior, but instead of focusing on their failures, go look in the mirror of all your sins, the way you think, the way you act, the way and and I think that that's that's an important principle. So I I, I mean he's kind of onto something. I mean Peter is does Peter remain? It, does does Peter's great failure remain with him throughout his life? Remain keeping him humble and grateful for God. There's there's a constant internal reminder of his own shortcomings. Maybe is that critical to living in a fallen world? I think it is critical. I think it is critical. Um, I think the church sometimes becomes this air of moral superiority that we're better than everyone else or that we got to tell everyone else about everyone else's failures and faults. I think we have a, we have a wrong way of thinking about sin and, and, and sharing it with people. And it's like, no, it, if it's nobody else's business, it's nobody else's business. You, don't have, you have no grounds to share it with anybody else. If you need to confront the confront the person themselves or confront the person that that can hold that person accountable, don't just put a person on full blast and to try to destroy them. That's not the Christian approach. It's I'm I'm exposing or or pointing this out for correction, for reproof, for rebuke, so that there can be restoration. So I I think that there there is a principle in there that we can apply to our life. I think it's a principle. They don't really do much with it, but if you're going to mention Peter's failure, okay, 
So I'm doing my best to try to pull something out of this. Uh, This is no longer going to be the the Peter option or the Benedict option. This is just going to become our, the theology central option. And I don't even really know, and I'm, I'm somewhat hesitant, and I really question even the attempt to create options. Because I think every option that the church has ever tried to create, in many cases, either falls into, just slides into complete legalism, or it, it just becomes a fad for a time. But that, that's a whole different discussion that we could have. I do think we need principles that we, need, that we can try to think about and try to figure out, but I don't know. All right, here we go. Let's just jump back in. I hope that was beneficial. And I don't know about you, Todd, but for me, what causes me greater angst in my own life is not persecution from external forces, but rather suffering with my own sinful nature. Okay, now that's powerful if we apply it not only to ourselves, but to the church at large. So let's start with you. Do you have more angst? I think he said angst, I think is the way he says it. I'm going to say, do you have more anger, more frustration, more irritation, more righteous indignation, more righteous anger at your own sin than the sin you see in the world? I'll, I'll, I'll try to use some examples that, that, may, that may greatly bother you, that may greatly bother you, okay? So, I'll, I'll, I'll use, first I'll use this example, then I'll try to use some examples that maybe will relate to you. Because this is a powerful point, even though he's not really applying it to an option for how we should live, I think there is some, some, something we can try to gain from this, right? Here's what I try to do. Even when a podcast or a sermon or whatever goes off the rails and I don't think it's really doing much, I try to grab onto anything I can to learn from it or to be challenged. So I'm going to try to make this applicable. Let me give you an example. There's lots of times as Christians, we look around the world and something bothers us. We just don't like it for whatever reason. We may not like it because it just, in our flesh, it disgusts us. Okay, I'll just give you an example. I'll use a personal example. If I'm somewhere and there is a gay couple, two men, and they start kissing, that, uh, oh, Okay, that's just my own, that's my flesh. That has nothing to do that I'm spiritual, nothing to do about being godly. I just, ugh, it just, I, I, yeah, I don't like to see, if I'm watching a television show, it, it, it's just, it bothers me. It, 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 it's, 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 it just goes against everything in me, all right? Now that's, that's, I'm not, that's nothing about being spiritual. That's not, I could be an atheist and would feel the same way. It's not even a, it's not even a moral judgment. It's just like, and I'm not saying I get mad because they're doing it in front of me. I just like, oh man, it, I don't want to see that. I, hopefully everyone can understand that, right? It's just, it's not, put it this way. It's the opposite of appealing to me, right? It, I don't like to see it, right? So if I if it's in a TV show, oh, I'll fast forward it because I don't want to see it. I don't like, it has nothing to doubt about me being more moral or godly than anybody else, but it bothers me. That's a very fleshly reaction. But the issue is if it bothers me morally, if it bothers me because I don't want to see that, I think that's appalling. I think that's ungodly. I think that's whatever spiritual terms. The question should be, am I as bothered by my own sin as that sin? When you're out in the culture and you see something that bothers you or disturbs you or makes you angry, do you have that same reaction to the sin committed by you? 
Are you bothered by your own sin? I'll give you an, a, a couple of examples, another example. Um, and I've, talk, I've told this story before. Uh, when I was in the United States military, uh, the base chaplain, and there was a few of us, had kind of an email group where we would talk about doctrine, we would talk about theology, and an email group. And it was, it was, it was fun. It, was, it could have probably been better, um, but it, it, I, I, was, I was hoping more people would get involved and it would really be better. But a lot of times it, you had work and it was just, it was always difficult to get everyone's reaction. But one day we, we get to work and someone who works at a di- at a, in a different squadron didn't work in the medical world somewhere else on base, he sent an email to the group basically saying, I'm outraged, I'm upset, I'm angry because this morning I was driving to work and there's a billboard right there off the, uh, the winner's freeway. And I can't believe that that's there for people to see because it's a woman basically with almost no clothes on. It's disgusting. How dare they put that? Who can I call to get that removed? And I'm like, whoa, whoa. So first of all, if you want that removed, what if someone drives by a billboard of a church advertising itself? What if they want that removed? So first of all, how about the freedom you take away from them is a freedom you are you denying yourself? But the thing is, are are you that upset about your own sin? Now, I think I know why the gentleman was so upset because it caused him sinful problems and sinful thought, think, thinking and lust. It's probably why he was so upset about it. But the thing is to say, instead of like, I want to take this down, it's like, hey, guys. Why don't you, I need your prayers because clearly I'm having some issues in the department of lust because I saw this billboard and it greatly impacted me. See, sometimes as Christians, we won't acknowledge how it's impacting us and we're bothered by that. We just declare war on whatever it is. Well, how about be honest about our own sin? Are we as outraged by our own sin as we are about the things in the world? I will, I will tell you that in the last eight or nine months, I would think more Christians are upset about critical race theory than they are about any problems happening in the church. People are more upset about critical race theory and the culture than they were about the new president of the Southern Baptist Convention having a completely heretical definition of the Trinity on his church website. And he was never held accountable for it at all. It just deleted it and everybody moved on and nobody cared. Critical race theory, they're ready to scream and yell and it's the end of the world. But we've got to make sure as Christians, we are bothered by our own sin as much or even greater that we feel the, in a sense, we suffer with our own sin far more than we feel angst at the sin of a lost culture. And sometimes I think the, 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 the church is always more bothered about the sin outside its doors than it is the sins inside its doors. I've been there. You've been there. People in your church have been. We've all been there. We, we, we develop Christianity. It's almost impossible, I think, that within Christianity not to develop a pharisaical, self-righteous mentality. It just creeps into us. And we're like, oh, I can't believe they would do that. I can't believe. How about just talk about, I can't believe I just thought that. I can't believe I just did that. I can't believe I just said that. We've got to become more aware of our own sin. If we're going to come up with an option in how to live in an ungodly world, let's be more bothered about our own sin. I'm not saying there's never a time to talk about the sins of the culture. I'm not saying that. I said to be more bothered 
by your own sin because I know I'm going to get 20 emails. So you don't care what happens in the world. You don't care if pornography is flooding our streets. You don't care what they're teaching kids. I said, let's start with ourselves. All right, let's start with ourselves. Let's start with ourselves, okay? That's what, and if you want to talk about being frustrated with the pornography and the culture, how about for some Christian men, I can't speak for Christian women, but for for many Christian men, instead of yelling and screaming about the pornography and the culture, why not acknowledge the reason you're bothered about the pornography and the culture is because of your own desire for it or participation in it. Now, I know you can't admit that because everybody in your Sunday school class would go, I can't believe it. Okay. Yeah. Because that's how we always have to act instead of just going, well, all right, that's, that's his struggle. Got my own struggles or I've got the same struggle and nobody knows about it, whatever the case may be. So I I do like that fact that that's a powerful way of saying it, that Peter in a sense suffered as much for, from, from the internal suffering of his own sin. He was an angst with his own sin more so than the persecution he was suffering from without. That's a powerful concept. I wish you would apply it more to this Peter, this option, but I, I, I'm going to do my best to at least put it out there. All right, let, let's continue. And I think St. Paul talks about this a great deal when he says things like in Romans, the good that I would, I don't do. That which I would not is the very thing that I do. O wretched man that I am. Or in Galatians, the spirit lusts against the flesh and the flesh against the spirit. And these are contrary to one another so that you do not do the things that you wish. Not only is that suffering intense, but I think that this is something that we have to understand as Christians is central to our suffering in this world. And in the case of Peter, when he talks in this baptismal doxology about how through various trials, the genuineness of your faith being more precious than gold than perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise and honor and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. He was really refined. His faith in Jesus was refined when he suffered under the weight of his own failures. And I think this is an aspect of human suffering that we fail to understand. Now, that's an interesting, we could get into a whole exegetical study here. Is Peter referring to the trial of your faith being a trial of suffering over your own sin? Is that what Peter is referencing here in 1 Peter 1? That's a big exegetical claim. That's a big claim. Now, I don't know if that's what's being said in this quote-unquote baptismal doxology. Um, I, I don't know. Can, can it apply? I do know this. We should suffer. I can say this dogmatically. We should suffer with the reality of our own sin. It should bother us. And that that awareness of it and suffering with it should help purify and and help us grow spiritually. I just don't know if that's a, a good place to insert that concept there as saying that Peter, is, it, the trial of the faith is referring to two, the external trial and the internal trial. I, I, I don't know. That, that's, that's an interesting claim. Hey, obviously he's not offering anything necessarily to support that, but, and I don't know how many commentaries would agree with that. It's something that maybe we could set aside for our own Bible study 
exercise at some point. I don't know. I don't know if we could prove that one way or the other. It's just it's a pretty he's making a pretty dogmatic claim there, but something to take note of. And fail to grasp. But when we do, as Peter encourages us to do by the example of his own life and in his epistle, the result of this then is complete and total reliance upon Christ and not at all relying upon oneself. And when there's total reliance upon Christ, you can't lose. You see, you have the victory. The salvation is sure and it is certain. It is kept in heaven for us. And even the things under which I suffer, even it's the struggle with my own sin, God promises to refine my faith because it is more precious than gold that perishes. So I think uh, these are important themes to emphasize. You know, who was Simon Peter? Well, he's an uneducated fisherman called to be a disciple of Jesus, an apostle of Christ. And so we can identify with that, can't we? Because not many of us were of erudite background, and he certainly wasn't. But he was tutored by the gospel, and that's what counts more than anything else. And that's why in this series, Todd, I want us to focus upon the gospel. I don't want to just articulate, you know, all of the particulars of the woke movement or social Marxism, cultural Marxism. It's important to note these things. But finally, we need to be what Peter became, and that is an expert at Christ. Who is he? What has he done for me? And to stake our faith and our hope upon him. We will talk about Peter's Christology and how it plays into the Peter option, living as exiles in a foreign land with Pastor Peter Bender next. Okay. It, what, to, okay. It, uh, this is what it feels like that has happened here. I, now I don't, now you can listen again. I've already put part one and part two of Issues, etc. I've embedded it in the Theology Central blog. I took their embed code and embedded it there so you can listen to it there. Or you can just subscribe to Issues, etc. and find all of their discussion about the Peter option. It, this is what it sounds like to me. Someone came up with a, a clever marketing ploy, right? Oh, here's the Benedict option. This book was number one in the New York Times bestseller. Everyone's talking about the Benedict option. Let's borrow from that. And we're going to take our study of first Peter and we're going to call it the Peter option. I think the Peter option is nothing more than a study of first Peter. I think, I think it's a, because now they're going to go to Peter's Christology. They're just going through First Peter. That's all they're doing. It, it looks like this series is just a series through First Peter, cleverly called the St. Peter option to get people's attention like mine going, oh, I know the Benedict option. And then I'm like, okay, let's talk. What's the St. Peter? I thought the St. Peter option was going to be, and now remember, this is one of the this is one of the negative things about doing the way I do things, right? Because I like everything to be very real. And organic. If I would have listened to this in advance, I probably wouldn't have even had this discussion, right? Because I would have figured out that's what they were doing. But I do this in real time. So you, you can you can love or hate what I do, but I like doing it this way because it's more real. Because like now we have the kind of the aha moment together, right? We work through this together. And now all of a sudden it just hit me. Like right where all of a sudden I just realized, aha, I know what this is. This is simply a clever title for their study of 1 Peter. This is not really the Peter option in contrast to the St. Benedict option. They're, they are 
piggybacking off the success of the saint or of the Benedict option. The Benedict option was successful. Let's borrow that concept and we'll call our study of first Peter, the Peter option. And we'll, we'll find some principles in here, but I mean, they're not really trying to articulate. This is exactly what we do. Now they'll, they'll pull some principles from this. And yes, some of their discussions of some of these verses, I think I can take and I can apply to how we should live in culture, right? I mean, he brought up some great points there about being more aware of our own sin, having more angst over our own sin, but then he didn't really apply it to us living in the culture, which they started their discussion by looking at the Saint or the Benedict option. I keep wanting to say the Saint Benedict option, the Benedict option. So they, they, they knew that they were wanting to borrow from that, pull people in, but it's really just a discussion of, of first Peter. So you can listen to the rest. If you find something that you're like, oh, you've got to hear, you know, the 45 minute mark, or you've got to hear part two, the 16 minute mark. I will be more than happy to come back and address it. And I will listen to this and maybe do one more part. I don't know if we're, uh, I don't know if I'm going to, in other words, if I do another part, it will just be whatever else I find interesting. I don't think this is really offering much of an option to what to do. Now, now they're going to be like, okay, we have to be. So they've kind of implied we need to have more angst over our, our own sin than the sins of the world. We need to uh, focus on the gospel, not just on the bad of the world. And then we ha- have to have a good Christology. We have a, go- have a good doctrine of Christ. Okay. Well, I mean, none of that really has anything to do. I mean, well, I, I guess, I mean, that, that those are just some basic principles pulled from First Peter and I still don't know why they're calling it a, ba- a bad baptismal doxology. There may be something in church history, but and they didn't even explain how that would fit with their doctrine of of baptizing babies who have no faith, other than arguing that the baptism gives them faith, which then, well, then okay, which then creates all kinds of questions and issues. But we won't go into all of that. I will end with this. All right, because they're going back to another one of their break, and they'll have all of their commercials. I know you like, well, you could just finish at this point. I think we've already figured out what they're doing, right? So. You can, I mean, you can applaud their, their being smart enough to, to pull from the Benedict option to create a series to try to pull people, people in. Good marketing strategy, smart, all right? I, I, should be sm- more, I should be smarter like that to pull people into listening to me, all right? But, all right, so here, here's what we're going to do. I want to end with this, all right? If you go to theologycentral.net and go to the blog section, You'll notice that I did a post on December the 6th called Christians Living in the World. And I I, I have a photograph there called In the World But Not of the World. And I quote an excerpt from the Epistle of Diognetus. All right, an excerpt from the Epistle of Diognetus, one of the earliest pieces of Christian apologetic writing. While we're not sure of the author, it was probably written sometime in the 100s. For the sake of reference, Justin Martyr, the most well-known apologist of the early church, lived roughly between 100 and 165, all right? Okay, good. I, I, I'm, ho- I'm hoping my discussion was convicting because I know it's convicting to me because I, I, I want to make it very clear. I don't have it figured out how to do that either because I'm, you know, it's easy for me to look out, out at everyone else's sin and not my own sin, but I need to have more angst of my own. All right, so... But here's, here's what the epistle of Diognetus had to say, and listen carefully, because I think it offers an early perspective. We'll call this the early church option of living in a very, well, pagan 
can we say, it wasn't a post-Christian world, a pre-Christian world, all right? Here we go, or a pre-Christian society. From the epistle to Diognetus, and, and there there's a link, and you can read the whole thing. This is uh, from a, 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 seg, a segment of it. Here we go. For Christians cannot be distinguished from the rest of the human race by country or language or customs. That's interesting. They're saying, hey, the early Christians, they couldn't really be distinguished by country, language, or customs. They, they looked like everyone else. They do not live in cities of their own. They do not use a peculiar form of speech. They do not follow an eccentric manner of life. This doctrine of theirs has not been discovered by the ingenuity or deep thought of inquisitive men, nor do they put forward a merely human teaching as some people do. Yet, although they live in Greek and barbarian cities alike, as each man's lot has been cast and follow the customs of the country and clothing and food and other matters of daily living, at the same time, they give proof of the remarkable and admitted extraordinary constitution of their own commonwealth. They live in their own countries, but only as aliens. They have a share in everything as citizens and endure everything as foreigners. Every foreign land is their fatherland, and yet for them, every fatherland is a foreign land. They marry, like everyone else. They beget children, but they do not cast out their offspring. Okay, that's one thing different than them. In other words, if they don't like the child, they don't throw the child out to basically die or, you know, to, to, to give away. They, they, they beget children and take care of them. They share their board with each other, but not their marriage bed. All right, that, that gives a little bit of idea of what makes them different. Um, it is true that they are in the flesh, but that they do not live according to the flesh. They busy themselves on earth, but their citizenship is in heaven. They obey the established laws, but in their own lives, they go far beyond what the laws require. They love all men and by all men are persecuted. They are unknown and still they are condemned. They are put to death, yet they are brought to life. They are poor, yet they make many rich. They are completely destitute, yet they enjoy complete abundance. They are dishonored and in the very dishonor are glorified. They are defamed and are vindicated. They are reviled and yet they bless. When they are affronted, they still pay due respect. When they do good, they're punished as evildoers. Undergoing punishment, they rejoice because they are brought to life. That gives a little insight into how the early church was living in the world. And what's interesting is they lived in the world, obviously very much putting others before themselves, not only obeying a law, going above and beyond, blessing them that would persecute you, demonstrating love, demonstrating respect, yet they tried to live according to the morality as taught in scripture, which did distinguish them different from the culture. But in the common ways, they, they looked like everyone else. They didn't separate themselves, isolate themselves. They were right there within culture. Now, I'm not saying uh, the epistle of, of Diognetus is, is inspired scripture and should be our authority, but I think that it's very interesting to see how the early church conducted themselves. We're in the culture. We're a part of it. What distinguishes us, I think, is our awareness of our own sin, before anyone else's, more bothered by our own sin than anyone else's, and that we try to just live in the world following the law, going above and beyond, and showing love, compassion, 
respect, and esteeming others better than ourselves, even if it's people who hate us, despise us, would persecute us, and use us. That is a Christian option that is not easy, and there's not three points in how to do it, but it's some principles that have come, come, well, directly in many cases from the Sermon on the Mount as Jesus. Now, we know if you've ever heard my teaching on the Sermon on the Mount, we can't keep the Sermon on the Mount. We're going to fall short of that every The only person who ever kept the Sermon on the Mount is the one who preached it, which was Jesus. In Christ, we keep it. So we, we need his obedience to save us, but we it does lay a groundwork and a framework for what we should strive for and what we should seek to do, no matter how far short we fall of, far, how far we fall short of it. So, there you have it. The St. Peter option is really nothing more than a study of 1 Peter, cleverly entitled to benefit from all of the buzz about the Benedict option. Well played, very clever. (laughs) You could have probably been a little bit more upfront in your marketing. (laughs) Hey, we're going to study 1 Peter, and we're going to call it the St. Peter option. Or you could just say a study of 1 Peter, part one, a study of 1 Peter, Part two, maybe they're going to apply some of it to the culture, but yeah, that that looks like what they did. You can go listen to it again. Part one and part two of the St. Peter option from Issues, etc. is embedded there on the Theology Central uh, pod page uh, website. You can go to the blog section and I will keep up with Issues, etc. And whenever I see part three, I will just embed each one to theologycentral.net to the pod, to the blog section. So just though it will be there, but, you know, please subscribe to their podcast because it is worth your time to listen to. They do talk about a lot of very important things, even though I don't always agree with their theology. I still think that they they bring a lot of interesting things to light. Um, but that I, I was really hoping for something better, but at least maybe we had some convicting discussions together and, and maybe we can Maybe we can take we maybe we can build from this and turn it into a different discussion somewhere else. Maybe we can apply it somewhere else. We, we, we will always try to do that. So, you know, whatever you listen to, whether it's good, whether it's bad, always try to take something from it. That's I'll try to learn that lesson. I listen to so many sermons from churches that I sometimes think are completely out of their minds, but I always try to take something from it. Sometimes I, I, I learn not what not to do with the text of Scripture, like what they did with First Peter there. I think it's a little questionable saying the trial of your faith is talking about the internal suffering of your sin. I don't know if I can say that exegetically, but I do know that we need to be more bothered by our own sin than the sins of the world. That is just, that's the essence of true biblical humility, in my opinion. All right, I'll stop right there. You can email me, newsifyahoo.com, newsifyahoo.com. I'll take a couple of minutes here to figure out what we're going to do next, and we'll just have a an afternoon and evening of live broadcasting coming to you right here from Victory Baptist Church in Ovalo, Texas. So thanks for tuning in. Thanks uh, for those who've participated, and uh, we'll see what else we can talk about this afternoon and this evening uh, that will hopefully benefit you spiritually. All right, thanks for listening. God bless.